My name is Michael Mayo. I'm one of the, the clergy on staff here. And Father James, who's celebrating this m morning, if you've been with us, you might know that he's our interim rector right now. He's our interim senior pastor. And I've been here for about a, a year and a half, but Father James has been here for what, for, for 15 years, for 20 years, for a long time. Um, and the longer I've been here, the more I've come to appreciate him. For one, he has a way of putting things very simply. A passage that would take him about 13 minutes to preach through takes me about 30 minutes. And I've come to understand, I've come to appreciate his understated sense of humor. This is the first time he's gotten to put together the preaching schedule since he's been the interim rector, and he sees to it that I get to preach the Sunday where all the passages are about money. And, and we laugh because we know that preaching about money is uncomfortable, not just for the preacher, but also for the parishioner. But following Jesus is not about comfort. In fact, if we are never uncomfortable, it means we're doing something terribly wrong. It means we might have a misunderstanding of what life as a follower of Jesus is all about. And of course, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate this. This is true of non-Christians as well. If, if you're a kid out there, perhaps you don't like to try new foods. It's uncomfortable. But if you never try new foods, you're going to be missing out on potential favorite foods that you never knew you had. In, in the same way, if, if you don't go through the discomfort of trying new things and being bad at things, You'll never get good at things. You don't go through the discomfort of putting yourself out there as you make new friends or start to try and date and get married. You'll never have deeper friendships and relationships. The good life requires us to endure discomfort. And so the discomfort we have this morning is not necessarily a bad thing, and I'm grateful for it. Because if we have the wrong idea of comfort, we'll, we'll settle for a shadowy existence instead of the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. Jesus says he came to give us life to the full. He came to call us both now and forever when heaven comes to earth into the fullness of life with him. But that's only possible if we let him say what is best. Because otherwise what we think might be best, like with comfort, might end us robbing us, might end up robbing us of the true life that we want. And that is why Jesus cares about our money. It's not because he just wants us to give him lots of money or something. It's because he wants us to have the fullness of life in him. That's what Paul said in our Timothy reading at the very end of it, when he's telling Timothy to exhort the rich among them, he says, if they do this, they'll lay hold of what is truly life. If they do this, they'll know real life as it's meant to be. If they uh, be rich in good works and don't seek the uncertainty of riches, they'll know what life is all about. And so our uncomfortable invitation this morning is to consider the warning that Jesus has as it relates to our possessions so, so that what we hold won't hold us back from following him. In this passage in the gospel today, Jesus is warning his disciples against becoming blinded by wealth like the Pharisees. And if Jesus is warning his disciples, the first thing that we have to do is to open our eyes and look at our own hearts. Jesus' words here apply to all of us. 
Now, it's natural when we read passages like this to think, oh, finally, Jesus is sticking up for the little guy. He's putting it to those rich, greedy folks and trying to set things right. It's natural to think this applies to other people, but not to us. It's so natural that all throughout the Middle Ages, when people looked at this parable, they said, this parable shows us what exactly the afterlife is like. Here's what heaven is like, and here's what hell is like. But if that's how we read this parable, that's what it's like if you read the story of Noah's Ark to try to learn the specifics of shipbuilding. That's not the main point. Granted, what the main point is is not immediately clear. Oftentimes when Jesus tells a parable, he introduces it with like some contextual statement or he summarizes it with some like, okay, here's the main thing I want you to, 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 to take away from this. But he doesn't have it. It just starts and then it stops. And so it's easy to miss the point. But if we take a page from Father James's book and look at context, we see not only the point of this parable, but how it points at us no matter where in life we find ourselves. See, in Luke 15, the chapter right before this, the Pharisees were looking down on Jesus for accepting sinners. So Jesus tells them parables to the point that the Pharisees don't accept sinners because they don't accept that they themselves are sinners in needs of God's mercy. And it, it goes on in Luke 16, and Luke, in this chapter, Luke is saying, here is why the Pharisees are blind to that. Here's why they are missing the boat on why they also need God's mercies. Here's what's keeping them from seeing. But curiously, in the first verse of this chapter, in Luke 16, chapter 1, it says, and Jesus spoke also to the disciples. So in this chapter, while Jesus is still talking about the Pharisees, he's talking to the disciples, not to the Pharisees. And you might notice that it didn't say, and Jesus said to the rich disciples. It didn't say, and Jesus said to the disciples who have a second house. It said, Jesus said to the, the disciples, full stop. He said this to Matthew, who was probably a rich person as a former tax collector, as much as he said it to Peter, who probably wasn't that rich as a former fisherman. This passage applies to all of us. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we willing to open our ears to listen to his words as we open our eyes to look into our own hearts? And that brings us to point number two. So point number one is this, this is about us. No matter what our bank account says, Jesus says this speaks to us. And so if that's the case, then the second point is to see how the love of money blinds us. Now there's an important bit of phrasing there. It's not that money itself is evil or wealth itself is bad, God is not against money in and of itself. I mentioned earlier that just before this chapter, Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. That would happen in Luke chapter 15. And you might remember that at the end of that parable, there's a big feast. 
there's a big party that certainly ran a pretty large tab in terms of how much it cost. That took lots of money. In the early church, they met in the homes, the large homes of people who had money to have space for them to gather in. God isn't opposed to the rich just because they're rich. He's not opposed to money just because it's money. No, he's opposed to the love of money. The love of money, as Paul puts it, can blind us to what is truly life. So then the question is, how does the love of money blind us? We can see some of this in the life of the rich man that we read about in this parable. I think he's blinded in at least three ways. First, he's blinded to the needs of others. He feasted every day, arrayed in the latest designer fashions, but he did not see Lazarus in need standing at his gate. Well, he did see Lazarus because when he's in torment, he knows Lazarus enough to recognize him and say, hey, I need your help. So it's not that he didn't know Lazarus was there. He didn't know that Lazarus had need or he didn't know that he had a need to help his need. So the question for us is, do we see the needs of our neighbors and are we moved by them? The love of money blinds us to the needs of others. Second, the rich man was blinded to the folly of his own lifestyle. In the end, his feast didn't do him any good. As the psalm tells us, his breath departed and his plans perished with him. In pursuing his life of, of comfort, he missed the, what life was all about. And so the question is, do we see what we are orienting our life towards? How do our expenditures reveal our affections? The love of money blinds us to the folly of our own lifestyles. And thirdly, the love of money blinds us to the ways of God. Do you see how he spoke to Abraham in this passage? It's, it's so pathetic that to me it's almost comical. This rich man is in a place of agony and torment, and yet he still thinks that Lazarus is there to serve him. He loved his money so much that he never listened to the pleas of Moses and the prophets. That he, he could read the Amos passage that we read and think, huh, that's interesting. And then go about his feasting and walk right past Lazarus. And this is what is most mind-boggling about this parable that doesn't, it's not highlighted for us as we read it. But when it says that he wore purple clothes and fine linen, that's not just a statement of like the, like the Gucci or the Prada or whatever it was back then that was the best height of, of luxury. If you look in the Bible and see where these two phrases of fine linen and purple pop up, they appear together 25 times. Once here in this passage, and then 22 times in the Old Testament to either talk about what the temple or tabernacle was like or to talk about the outfits of the priests. So this man 
was likely a priest. He likely read Moses and the prophets every day, knew them by heart. But his love of money blinded him from the life that God had intended for him. His love of money blinded him not only from the needs of others, not only from the folly of his own lifestyle, but also blinded him from the ways of God. And I know that that can so often be true of me. I like how oftentimes the collect is supposed to tie into like what the theme of the passages are. And today the collect is just like asking God for mercy. It's like saying, forgive me. It's almost like it's assuming that we in our own ways are susceptible to this pattern of, of loving things that distort our ability to see others, to see ourselves, and to see God. So that's the second point for us, is seeing how the love of money blinds us. Now, here's the third point. If it's how can we see clearly? How can we see our possessions for what they are in a way that they don't possess us? How can we see our wealth in a way where we don't see our riches as the source of a rich life? If we want to heed Jesus' warning, we must see our possessions clearly for what they are. And here's a way that I can think is helpful for that. Have any of you ever borrowed someone else's car? If so, how did you treat it differently than you might treat your own car? Perhaps you didn't eat in it. Perhaps you didn't speed as much as you might normally speed. I'm not accusing you of speeding. I'm just saying perhaps, perhaps you didn't speed as much. Perhaps you had a greater following distance in the car behind you because you didn't want to mess up this thing that was not yours. You took better care of it because you knew it was not your own and you wanted to give it back to its owner in good shape. Knowing to whom the car belonged perhaps made you use it and see it in a different way. And that's kind of how it is with our possessions. You see, the Bible teaches that our stuff in the end, is not only our stuff. We, we don't practice this at servants, but in the Book of Common Prayer, when the offertory is brought up, there's a liturgy there uh, for how we can like, give thanks for and bless the offering as a congregation. And here's how it goes. It starts with the priest or the, or the celebrant saying how God is so great and how God is so awesome. And the last thing that, that the celebrant says is, all things come from you, O Lord. And what the people say in response is, and of your own have we given you. Did you catch that? Of your own have we given you. It's saying that everything is yours, God, so much that even the things that we have in the end aren't fully our own. Now, please listen to what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard for what you have. I'm not saying you haven't worked hard to build the, the network and relationships that you have to come to wherever you are in life. I'm not saying it's bad to own things. But I am saying that the, the picture that the Bible gives us possessions is different than what we tend to have. The cultural assumption is, tend, is something like this. 
if she worked hard to earn it, then she can do whatever she wants with it. That's kind of the assumption about possession, stuff, wealth, money, that we have in our culture. And legally, that is true. Your name is on the title of, is on the deed of your house. Your name is on the title of your car. Perhaps you've licked the icing of your favorite piece of cake or brownie to put your name on it and make sure that you got it and, and no one else did. It's yours. And that's true. But in a cosmic sense, we're all, we're all renters. In a cosmic sense, everyone is leasing what they have. And how does that change how we see our stuff? Well, the ACNA Catechism, which if, uh, some youth in confirmation have been going through, it puts it like this. It asks a question, um, like, what are we to do with our possessions? How are we supposed to use what we have? And here's the answer it gives. As I am able, I should earn my own living, care for my dependents, and give to the poor. I should use all my possessions to the glory of God and the good of creation. It's saying our stuff isn't just for ourselves. It's for the glory of, it's to care for our needs, yes. It's to care for the needs of those um, who we're responsible to. And part of that means saving and preparing for, for the future. Like it, it doesn't mean you can't have any savings or anything like that, but it does mean how we see what that's for is transformed. And here's a way of thinking about this idea that what we have isn't just for ourselves. You might remember the triumphal entry. So this is the week, this is kicking off the week before Jesus is crucified. He rides into Jerusalem to all the hosannas and to all the praises. And when he's organizing it, he tells a couple of his disciples to go up to someone who has a donkey and he tells them to say, the Lord has need of it. And that person just gives them the donkey sight unseen. And so the question for us is how can we be paying attention to the different places in our life where God, through his Holy Spirit, through people in our lives, is saying, the Lord has need of this. What are the places, who are the people who are showing us where our possessions can be used for the good of creation and for the glory of God? And if we do this, then it means that we'll have to surrender things that we like at times. It means we'll have to be uncomfortable. It's tough. I, I, I don't like to do it. Um, it's hard to live like this. It goes against the grain of our culture, and it goes against the inclination of our hearts. It would be much easier to just have a rule. Give away this amount. But Jesus doesn't actually ever give us a simple rule of what to do with our money. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, here's how much you should give away. 
you, you might have heard as a tithe of 10% giving, but that's from the Old Testament. The New Testament never prescribes how much we're to give. And here's, I think, why. Because Jesus is not after a line item in our budget. He's after the affections of our hearts. He doesn't want us to give a certain amount. He wants us to live a certain way. He wants us to live in a way in which when we see others that have needs, we're not so beholden to what is ours that we don't hear the voice of God saying, the Lord has need of this. And if you're like me, you might be like the rich man more than you'd like to admit. I like my comfort. I like to shield myself from the needs of those around me so I don't have to feel bad about what's going on out there. I like leisure. I'm even interested in the things of God if they don't come at the expense of my self-interest. And I can be blinded by my possessions, by my money, or by my time that I think is my own. But we are different from the rich man and that we do not only have Moses and the prophets to open our eyes. We do have one who rose from the dead, who knows the ways each of us would rather forsake the riches of God for the deceitfulness of wealth. And so Jesus, though he was rich for our sake, became poor and not gave just 10% of his blood, but every ounce of his life so that he might open our eyes to the riches of God's love and how we can live generously as Jesus did himself. Seeing Jesus' generous love empowers us to live generously as well. And so the question for us is, how is God asking us to give to those who have need? Where are the places in our life where he's saying the Lord has need of this? And if we're thinking about giving to the church, it's not just about that. It's not about giving just to the church. It's about charities. It's about communities. It's about people you know. It's about your daily circumstances. It's much more uncomfortable than a rule. But it provides a far richer life than riches can offer. Please pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you care about us so much that you see all the ways in which we would want nothing to do with you and the ways in which we would say, I want the stuff that is mine more than I want you. And so I ask that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would help us to see ourselves and the desires of our own hearts and the ways in which they fall short of the fullness of life that you have. God, open our eyes to see the needs of those around us and show us how we can wisely give of what is ours, of what is yours, 
to, to serve others. And above all, Jesus, please open our eyes to see how generous you have been to us in giving all of yourself that we might know the riches of your grace. Amen.